this episode of Dig Me Out. These guys do loud and then just pummeling loud. Mm. Some of the songs are 7, 8, 11 minutes long. It didn't feel like that. Like, I was just in the zone when I was listening to this record. This is like a really well-crafted album from beginning to finish. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Manichi. Joining me once again, labor peace almost in the air in the NFL. Jay, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good. I'm, I'm bummed with that hello, though. That was pretty, that was pretty weak. <laughs> it's, uh, it's due to my uh, eight-day coughing fit that I'm currently on. Oh, come on. About an hour before the show, I was ready to yak up my dinner. I was coughing so hard. I've calmed it down with three uh, raspberry Tetley teas. So... Mm, delicious. Um, Everyone, everyone's always paralyzed by the red light. You know what happens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That voice right there was our special guest for this evening, Professor. I like saying that. Neil Schmidt. Neil, welcome Hello. to the show. <laughs> there we Hello, go. Hello, and welcome to another. Thanks for having me, Tim. I'm glad to be here. So let's give some of uh, Neil's bona fides. Neil is a, I guess you would say, a longtime member of the Columbus. Music scene, founding member of the seminal Ohio band Pretty Mighty Mighty, owner and operator of the legendary Workbrook Studios, which saw bands such as The Sun, and um, who else recorded there, Neil? Just just rattle off a few important names that people would Denver recognize. Five, <laughs> important, I said important names. New Bomb Turks, um, all sorts of fun bands. Yeah, and then you left the uh, recording private recording industry, I guess you would say, and you are now a professor of recording. Yeah, I think my full title is just assistant professor, but yeah. Yeah, so that's what I teach. I, we talk about music all day long, and it's really fun. And where and is that health at? insurance. That's down at Hawking College in Nelsonville, so awesome. we have a nice little studio. Use Pro Tools, Logic. We use a lot of garage bands, so... And if you can hear some noises, my kids are watching uh, uh, some uh, little biggest loser in the next room, so... Nice. It's a big, big hit here at the Schmidt household. So Metzkel Head. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the album we're recording or listening to tonight. Or listening to that's the album we're reviewing tonight. Swerve Drivers, Mezcal Head. You picked this one for us. So yeah, was this a new record? Did you guys know this band at all? I yes. had listened to them, but I was not familiar. Like I didn't know the tunes at all. But I listened to the album once or twice. Jay knew better. I'm familiar with them just because. Uh, Stafford kept getting um, compared to them, <laughs> and I had never heard them before. Oh, really? Yeah, we play shows, oh, okay. and people will come up and uh, you know start saying, oh, "Wow, you guys sound a lot like Swerve Driver." We're like, "Who the hell is that?" So I'm like, "I better go look and find out who this band is." So uh, I think I got this album in like maybe 2001, 2002. Um, so I, I've I've listened to it since then. What, did you start with Mescalhead, or did you go back to start with Raid, the debut? Actually, I have Mescalhead, and I think I have, is it 99th Dream? I don't okay. have the first album. But it's on e Yeah, I would so think this would, when I, when, I, when I was revisiting this record, I, 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 I have to admit, I know Ray's much better, which was the debut, mm-hmm. um, than I did Mescalhead. And I think when Mescalhead came out, it just seemed more the same, and... and why that sometimes is a good thing. I was like, well, I like Ray's, so that's you know one record's enough for me. Hmm. But when I was revisiting it, I was thinking of you, Jay. Like just the the because as far as like some of the softer stuff is not your bag. But I thought like the like I wrote Muscle Car. <laughs> it, 
Exactly, yeah. So I, I thought that, you know, like, where the, whereas the shoegazer mentality might not be your thing, they bring, like, uh, a slightly different slant. And it's not so much the wah-wah, but the tremolo that I love. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but there's definitely, like, a uh, like a primer black muscle car. Not a shiny one, but kind of a dirty one. <laughs> I think that's a good observation. Absolutely. I th- I, they, especially because um, there's a lot of car references, and they're kind of remind. If they were a U.S. band, I think they'd be a stoner rock band. Do you, with the with a lot of the attitude that they bring forth. Do you got a little history uh, on this band, Tim? Because I don't know yeah. much about them other than this album. I would be more than happy to provide some history. <laughs> I love this part of the show. <laughs> All right, Swerve Driver formed in Oxford, England, in 1984 under the name Shake Appeal, which was an homage to the Stooges, which was a, a big influence on the band uh, at the start of their career. They became Swerve Driver in '89 and signed to Creation Records thanks to the members of Ride, who they were friends with, uh, pa- passing their demos to Creation Records uh, head honcho Alan McGee. And he signed them. They put out a bunch of singles between 89 and 91, and then in, re- in 91, Rays, the debut came out. Um, in 93, Mezcal Head. 97, Ejector Seat Reservation. And 90... Uh, sorry, was it 98... 99th Dream, but there are some interesting uh, tidbits between those albums. First of all, when they were touring uh, Mezcalhead in 95, their drummer quit the band while they were about to hit the border in, from Canada to the U.S. And this was the start of the tour. I love that. I, love, I read that story, too. He went out for a sandwich. <laughs> and he just and never came back. Yeah. Holy so they found a band. Uh, they found a drummer from a band in D.C. Uh, and he was recruited to play the rest of the U.S. tour. And then he ended up playing their Japan and U.K. tours. Uh, they then um, picked up uh, the core members were Adam Franklin, who was the vocalist and guitarist, and Jimmy Hartridge, who's the lead guitarist. And they recruited Jez Hindemarsh and Steve George for the rest of the uh, band's existence. Um, they toured. Uh, with Smashing Pumpkins and Shudder to Think. Uh, Ooh, good a, bill. Huh? Yeah. That's a good bill. Yeah, that is a good bill. And then um, when Ejector Seat Reservation came out, they were dropped one, re- one week after the release by Creation Records, and it was never officially released in the United States. They signed to Geffen Records to release 99th Dream, but before they could actually release it, the A&R guy who hired them was downsized so they never got the album even though a promotional copy of the album went out it never actually got released so it came out on uh, Zero Hour Records which is a little indie label and never got any major uh, publicity in the United States they didn't tour for it they broke up almost immediately after for 10 years they were on hiatus from 98 to 2008 and then they reformed for Coachella in 2008 uh at the same time, their first three albums were re-released by Sony BMG in the UK with bonus tracks, and there is a move to have the albums also re-released in the United States, especially the one uh, Ejector Sea Reservation, which never got an official release. So that is Swerve Driver in a nutshell. So none of these you know, guys the, went on to do other things? Yeah, they went on to do solo... What's his name? Adam Franklin went on to do... A solo project called like Toe Back or Toe Shack Highway or something like that. Um, 
they wanted to play guitar and, and drums in other bands, but nothing of any significance. And they seem to, they re, have reformed a couple different times, and Adam Franklin actually played the Treehouse uh, maybe about two years ago. The Treehouse, really? For those who are, are um, Swedish listeners, in the United <laughs> States, the Treehouse is a small bar in Columbus, Ohio, that actually has a tree growing out of the middle of it. And about how houses about maybe thirty-five people. Yeah, yeah. In the in the viewing space, in the performance space. So yeah, Adam Franklin played their solo. Wow, yeah. that's that's crazy. Yeah, that's quite a fall. Hmm. <laughs> Which is unfortunate because you know he's a. I don't know that this is a timeless sound, but it's a good sound. I, I was yeah. Let's get into that. Let's go ahead. Go now. I was gonna say let's get into the record and Jay. Why don't you're a little more, more familiar with me with it than me, so why don't you start off with, you know, your thoughts on the timelessness and, and overall of the record? Well, like like I said, I, I picked this up in probably early 2000s, so I didn't really, I mean, I knew it was done in the in the 90s, but I didn't really have a specific year in my head when I was listening to it. Um, I think just maybe yesterday, I just double checked to see what year it came out. And I was kind of shocked to see it came out in '93, because uh, Daniel's point, you know, to me it sounds. You know, pretty pretty timeless. I mean, considering, you know, I would say they're probably considered a shoegaze band in some ways. Um, not all that stuff is held up as well, but like production-wise and um, just the way the songs are constructed, it, it really holds up surprisingly well. Um, this this many years later, a couple of things that stood out for me as I listened to it again that I think really make it um, to work for me is um, they do this really cool thing with. They double track the guitars, um, you know, like a lot of bands do, especially the rhythm. But they play it just different enough that it sounds kind of crazy at times, which is pretty neat because it, it, it'll lock up. And then there's other parts where, like, the second guitar, instead of doing exactly the same thing, he'll do, like, some weird feedback thing and, like, introduce some crazy effect and kind of play that. And just gives it this really, like, odd sense of, like, it gets gets on and off the rails, I guess. And uh, another thing that played off of that for me was the listen to it now was the drummer and just the band in general, the rhythm section. They do all kinds of really cool stuff with time, so they don't ever really stay. I, I would I would say a lot of shoegaze stuff kind of finds like kind of one rhythm or one groove and kind of stays with the whole song. And they're constantly pushing and pulling, like they don't ever stay with any uh, one tempo. Or, I mean, the tempo's the same, but one uh, one time for very long, and I think that really helps the songs keep stay interesting and allows them to do some stuff where they kind of make some noise and jam a little bit and then come back. But because they're constantly playing with the timing, it, it makes you pay attention the whole time. Um, so I mean, I think I really appreciated that. I mean, the guitars on it are awesome in terms of not only tones are great, but just all kinds of really cool riffs in here and um, really cool picking parts. The effects are, are really uh, a big part of the sound, but kind of the way that when we reviewed the Big Rack record, um, they're, 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 they know what they're doing with the, with the effects and with the pedals, and they're playing them um, to, the, to do really interesting things with them. They don't just turn them on and just you know play the whole song with the effect on. Um, which is really cool. And one of the songs that stood out for me this time listening to it that I really didn't remember the first uh, when I first got the album was uh, Last Trade in Satansville. And uh, yeah, 
It's really cool, cool because song. It, it starts off uh, with kind of like a surf guitar almost riff. Yeah, I was going to say that. Is it very surf guitar sounding? And then I'm listening to it and I'm like, something about this sounds familiar and I couldn't quite figure out what it was and all of a sudden it hit me. It's, you know, I think that song is a tribute maybe to Johnny Cash because it kind of has like a, I don't know, like a weird like Johnny Cash vibe to it and even vocally. What's the bass line? It's got that two note, you know, dun 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 bass line. Yeah, and even the title of the song was like, wow, is that kind of like a Johnny Cash, you know, was it inspired by the, by by him, or they had to be sort of playing around with that idea? But it, it's sort of different for the album, and it's stuck right in the middle. And it just it really I think it makes the point to me that this is like a really well crafted album from beginning to finish. It's you know kind of takes you on a journey. Um, it's got ups and downs. Like all the songs play off of each other. Um, you know, there's it, it's not too long. Um, that's you know that song is it could have been almost a single kind of kind of thing and they spend about two minutes at the end. That song's like six and a half minutes long. I know, but that's <laughs> yeah. the problem is that after like you kind of like there's a hook at the beginning and two and a half minutes in I'm like okay it's probably wrapping up here soon and I look and it's like holy crap there's four more <laughs> no. minutes left and they just keep going yeah, and these going. These guys are not they are not three minute out even their four minute songs seem longer than four minutes. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I don't know if you get in. So part of my job is to get into the production, and obviously, you know, from recording, I geek out. So the thing about, and I, I think Ray did too, that this record was at least mixed, if not produced, by Alan Mulder. So Alan Mulder, who continues to still make records and has worked with, you know, My Bloody Valentine and Ride, two specific bands from that era where he really crafted their sound and he was still working on his sound his production is definitely a big part of what's going on you know and he is someone of those bands where the guitars are so affected and really hard to make that not a wall of noise like he got really good at carving that out Mm -hmm. and from a sonic standpoint the record does not really especially Ray's and Mescalhead together those two records don't sound like a lot of other records and maybe Queens of the Stone Age is about as close as you get to a modern sound of that mm-hmm. where there's just like a particular like as soon as you hear the guitars you know like I knew like there's like a wet rush of like oh, panoramic guitars like swaying in my head like I remember that sound like mm-hmm. it's a really unique sound that they carve out with those guitars mm-hmm. and I think Alan Mulder is a big part of that not hearing the other records and I don't know if they had the cash or time to work with him so I'd be curious to see and I know there was a lot of backlash with the third record which was a little bit more straightforward but I love it It, there's definitely those layers that you were talking about Jay that there's the guitar parts are going and then there's you know in the white in the right channel there's like this 
feedbacky thing going on, and then all of a sudden, like, there's the, on the other channel, like, there's this wah thing, and then, you know, where that dynamic in '93, you're talking, uh, well, that's when Kurt Cobain died, right? So you you got the everyone sort of embracing the Pixies Nirvana, a loud, quiet thing, but these guys do loud and then just pummeling loud, <laughs> you know, in, a, in almost yeah. a, in a metal way that I think in some ways embrace that some of the metal guys probably embraced this record in a, in a way that they probably were surprised because it didn't it never gets super quiet mm -hmm. you know the drummers may be hitting a kick and a ride pedal but that's about as quiet as it's going to get it's never going to break it down to an acoustic guitar part with some heartfelt lyric it's going to mm -hmm. you know have this line and then just like everything just comes on full-on blast you know and then there's from a production standpoint you know they throw in vibra slaps and tambourines and you know, all sorts of fun production pieces that I thought just were, you know, especially listening to it, being a little wiser, like, that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. It's funny you mentioned the, uh, the vibra slap. I actually, I was telling Jay before, I drove to Madison, Wisconsin over the weekend, and um, I had this on, and my wife was sleeping in the passenger seat, or semi-sleeping, and um, this was a great driving record. I mean, I just got it up to about 85 miles an hour on Interstate 70. It was just cruising, listening to this record, listening to the huge guitars. And um, track six came on, Harry and Maggie. Vibra slap hit, and uh, my wife turns to me and she just says, Vibra slap. <laughs> right. She's a music teacher, so anytime she hears right, any right. weird instrument, she like points it out. You know, it's something like that. cool, too. Yeah, and um, to me, this is like, this, this is a great record for getting into the long songs. We criticized, I think, the Triple Fast record, Triple Fast Action record, a little bit because the songs tended to go on a little too long. Whereas I think within the context of this band, not trying to write three and a half, four minute long pop rock songs, but just, you know, letting the guitars roll, you know, uh, letting the riffs churn over and over again. It really gets hypnotic and you can just, um, uh, you know, put it on. And like, I, I, this record went by in a blink because even though it's, you know, some of the songs are seven, eight, 11 minutes long, it didn't feel like that. Like, I was just, uh, in the zone when I was listening to this record. Um, I gotta ask, when the the albums that you guys have, do you have the 10 track album, which is the UK release, or the 11 track album, which is actually the US release? I have a 10 track I album. Have, I have not, I don't know which release I have, but I have, I had the Never Lose That Feeling single separate from the record. Okay. So so it was in, that was released and what is that like that's 14 minutes that that's like a bonus track on the US version, right? Yeah, well the the song is yeah, it's like 11 minutes, 14 minutes something like that. The actual song <laughs> that feeling is 4 minutes long and then there is a jam that goes on for like 10 minutes and it includes a sax solo. 
Oh, God. So I'm kind of happy that Jay didn't have that version because it might have tainted. He might have got to the end of the record and be like, what the hell is this? I would have lost it's my like mind. Kind of, it's not like there was, you know, that's definitely a time you could go even back and, and you know, there was a Columbus band called The Toll that released a kind of get lit record on Geffen and the, the single they released was a nine minute single with a huge spoken word part in the middle and they re- had a video for it and everything it's like why would you sabotage yourself and and never lose that feeling which is the bonus track on the u.s version is such a great song Why do you have to? And is it is it because we're really embracing it and we know it's a pop song and we don't want to be successful or are we trying to do something different or you know so that yeah that sax solo that I'll never lose that feeling it's always one of those things you're like all right I'm done with it yeah <clears throat> the first that, couple minutes are an amazing song yeah you mentioned Alan Mulder it was because of Mulder's work with bands like Swerve Driver and other you know shoegaze quote unquote bands um, that he ended up working with the Pumpkins Billy Corgan directly. Oh, you know, yeah, reference these bands to to have him come and work on. Um, I think it was Siamese Dream was the first one. I think he also absolutely Melancholy as well. But that was a band. You know, in terms of we try to sometimes link them the bands that are not well known to bands that are a little more well known, so it helps people get an entry point. To me, this band sounded like a, like the guitar heft of pump of the Pumpkins, especially on Siamese Dream. But I also heard some like Dinosaur Jr. in there. Yeah. With in ter- that was the American sort of influence I heard in terms of the. You, Neil, you mentioned that it, you know even though the guitars are layered, they're they're not washed out. They're not. There's not this huge. You can definitely you can hear the tones. You can get the the tone of each guitar player. And I think a lot of that to me comes from like Dinosaur Jr. where you can really tell J Mass's uh, J Mass's tone on. Each song and each record, how it it you know changes slightly, but it's still essentially his guitar tone. And I don't know what you know if that's just simply the overdrive pedals that they're using or, or what exactly they're doing. But um, it doesn't sound like any. I even hate saying that they're a, a shoegaze record or shoegaze band because they're so much more well defined in terms of their guitar tone. Whereas when I think of shoegaze, I think of like the first Catherine Wheel record you know my bloody valentine where it's like this wall and you can't even really make out what the guitar is playing let alone what the tone is other than it's just a wall of noise um and there's a ton of reverb and delay and this guitar tone on here is a lot more discernible than that um 
which is why I think what? that the Stone Age reference is fully spot on because you can definitely hear what they're playing from note to note. Well, I like that, you know, where the, for Catherine Wheel, I, I think you're, you're touching on something. So Catherine Wheel, when I think of, of guitar noises that they're creating, it, it definitely is, is a reverb vibe. And with My Bloody Valentine, you have uh, the, you know, the vibrato and, and the, the whammy bar of, and the strumming of Kevin Shields. And that's a big part of the My Bloody Valentine sound. And then I think with, with Swerve Driver, you've got this tone and there's just tremolo and I love tremolo. So th that's a big thing that they do. What's also happening in, around this time is this is when guitar tones went to be the, the noises that we're talking about where you go from the strumming is nearly indistinguishable and it just becomes this buzzsaw, you know, like where you can't really tell that someone's strumming or just hitting a chord, you know. So this is kind of in between that. But I think the, car, the guitar tones that this band, I mean, it's, again, I think it's really unique to them. And when I hear Ray's and I wear her mezcal head and, and when these records came out, I, I, they were very unique sounding. And almost, I was actually surprised that mezcal head and was, had Alan Mulder's signature because I knew it was close to that. But at the same time, I'm like, I wonder if this producer had hearing issues because the high end that you hear on a lot of guitar records is not there. And the cymbals have a little bit of high end, but... It, this record is very mid-range, which is where the guitars live, mm -hmm. and then the voices are ju just loud enough to be in there. Um, you know, you're not, you don't have. Cause also, when you've got Pearl Jam going on, where you've got, you know, an Eddie Vedder whose head seems enormous because the band is so small behind him. You know, and there's so much reverb, and they sound like this big arena band. Mm -hmm. And you've got these shoegazer bands and My Bloody Valentine, where the vocals are just above. You know, just like just a little hole carved out. What's going on, and you can hear everything. And I, I think it's a fantastic listen. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I think that there's two guitar players in this, right, in this band. Two guitar players. Yeah, I, I think just in terms of not only is the production really done and the tones well, well tuned and well chosen, but they just play well off of each other. They just know how to fit all of the parts together so that they each have their own space, but they don't get in the way. Which, with the amount of layers that are here, that's really hard to do. But uh, somehow they're able to do it, which is, I think, what makes it so successful and what makes it... It's the kind of record where you'll, you'll listen to it the first time and things will jump out at you and you'll, you know, hopefully like it. But, you know, the more you listen to it, you'll notice more and more. And there'll be songs that maybe the first couple times you listen to you didn't notice, but then later on you start to notice and... You know, to me, that's that's a sign of a pretty good record is when you can kind of live with it for a while and keep discovering new things about it and, and appreciate it in different ways over time. I, I, I'd be curious to if, you know, if someone was, okay, Swerve Driver, would, and I, you guys don't know the records. And again, I came in at Ray's, and, and Ray's Down is just one of the greatest songs of that generation. You should actually, if you can play a snip of that in this podcast, because it's just got an awesome, awesome riff.
Um, and I don't think this record is so much a riff record. Like, I think Queens of the Stone Age, from guitar tones and sort of a little bit lengthier songs, but it's a little more riff-driven. But um, this record is... It, it, this and Ray is, like, very... Even though the, I think the rhythm section was either totally different or at least a different drummer. Different drummer guitar, and bass player, yeah. Yeah, so the guitar players really define... The, the, are the glue between these two records. It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was looking... I brought it up on iTunes, and I'm looking, because I think Duel was the first single, and Last Train of... Satansville was the second single. Hmm. Five fifty nine and six forty five <laughs> are your lengths of song. That's hilarious. Well, that's, that's one of the themes that we've talked about. I think uh, several times now through this podcast is just how ridiculously long songs were on these on these albums. Like, I mean, we're we so far have attributed it to just the fact that CDs were you know new and there were, weren't as many limits on you know how long a song could be because. You know, tape, tape and yeah. vinyl obviously limited that so bands just started putting you know 14 15 16 songs on albums letting them go you know eight six seven eight minutes long jamming out putting bonus tracks putting hidden tracks it was sort of like just this period of just anything goes in terms of whatever you want to put on a record um, we have 72 minutes we should use it yeah exactly <laughs> and sometimes it, it it's i mean we you know what I don't want to get too far off track here, but you know, one of the albums that we all really liked uh, was the Failure record, and I mean, but all of us still admitted that you know it's very hard to get through that record and stay focused and pay attention to the whole thing because there's just so much on it, and there's you know not only is every song like in this record, it, it had it had maybe one or two songs, it would have been probably in the same realm, but they 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 were smart enough to cut it off at ten, and it just it's just enough to kind of you know, put you right towards the edge of like, you feel like you, you know, really, you know, when you listen to this record that you really went on a journey, I guess, and you heard a lot of different things and it, but it doesn't get you to the point where like, all right, enough. <laughs> like you were saying, like with uh, the bonus track, which I guess, I, I don't think I've ever heard that song, but I could just imagine like if that's the the last song on the record and, you know, it's, how long did you say it was? Like eight minutes long. It's 1149. Like, and it goes into a sax solo. I would probably yeah, like, yeah. But the, the core of be... that is never lose that feeling, which has, again, that's, it, it, and was the single right after Ray's, but before this record. Mm-hmm. Again, this is not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't categorize this as a riff record. I don't know what you guys, but the riff on never lose that feeling is awesome also. So those two, like Ray's down and, I mean, just some great, great, textures and just you know i want to i'm like want to air guitar now like wow, 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 wow. man it's awesome the, the song is four minutes and ten seconds and then there's essentially a seven minute long jam tacked on like the, the jam doesn't even really have anything to do with the rest of the song i was gonna say uh, one of the songs that i actually really liked is track nine to rest and yeah. what it's got a three and a half minute long intro of just no of like nothing to do with the rest of the song and then there's the once it gets past that three and a half minute long intro, it's a cool song. That intro kills me though. Yeah, it's I, a, it's I always a get four and a half and minute long it. song with a three and a half minute long intro. I will say, Which, like, uh, in terms of, of, I mean, that's a good example of. I mean, to me, the intro, it, it like I said, it kills it for me. But there's like the opening track for Seeking Heat. There's mm-hmm. just enough intro there where it kind of pulls you in, and then they just, it's like a a charging rhino <laughs> like this riff just kicks <laughs> in and it's like holy crap
in terms of like to your point neil about you know this not being a riff record i wouldn't say it's a riff record but there are riffs intertwined through the whole thing and they kind of pull you in and they don't overdo them you know they're just enough to kind of they almost like the hooks of the album um as opposed to the vocal it's sort of like where these riffs come in it kind of grabs you and then they go to something else and, and that's the surprise it that's the definitely the uh the shoegazer mentality where you know i love and that's that they use that kind of generic term those are my bands i mean ride and my bloody valentine and lush and i love all that and most of the melodies are like ah, ah, like there's nothing there you know like it's just like one word kind of held out but there's like this cool texture and it's memorable for how it leaves you and and i think that's the the connection to this record is that where like I don't know you know again I haven't spent a ton of time with it and and raised down but it's more like the you know the riffs and the way that makes me feel that and that's I think the word connection is to the shoegazer mm -hmm. but they you know turned up the not only the volume but the muscle and I, I like that idea of the stooges and I think that's where that some of that comes and again that muscle car and that kind of comes there's a definitely like a, a uh, a dude mentality as opposed to like we're like so fey mm -hmm. you know and like oh we're playing our guitars you know and I'm like no 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 we're gonna play guitars <laughs> that's awesome I did yeah the Stooges the students uh, thing is is pretty interesting I that makes a ton of sense but I never would have it never would have come to me I guess just listening to the music but now that you say it I, I kind of see where they get that attitude from and where those where they're coming from from uh you know, when they play a heavy riff, you know, what their point of reference is, it's more Stooges than, say, Led Zeppelin. So, so uh, one thing that we like to do on the show, Neil, is we like to talk about why this band wasn't more popular and what our theories are. So I, I wonder if you have a theory of why this band, you know, wasn't Oasis or Blur or... You know, why didn't they break through the way that other British bands did in the United States? Or why, even in the, in the UK, they they weren't, you know, as big a band as, as those bands. They only they didn't have a huge single. Duel was a, a pick by, I think, NME. Picked them as a single of the week, but it wasn't, you know, a number one single, single or anything like that. So, um, do you have any opinions on that? Um, well, I know, you know, they had some lineup changes, um, and with the sort of the outsider mentality because they couldn't be categorized very easy that's always really difficult for bands so that you know and I wouldn't you know my Billy Valentine's popularity in the US is really limited you know we're right. there's a, so it, it, it's hard to say you know like but that that band launched the Pumpkins I mean Billy Corgan was completely aping the sound of that record and so was Bob Mould and so were all these other people so that record is responsible for a lot. So then when you have then sort of the second tier, maybe even the, maybe Sword Driver might even go into tertiary of that. Um, I, I don't know. Is it, you know, not, is it, I mean, that when we, they, you said they played with the Pumpkins and who else was on that tour? Shudder to Think. Yeah. So <laughs> Shudder to Think, I would put them in that same category with Shudder to Think where people who like that band and know of that band were really diehard fans. But there was just something inaccessible about what they're doing. And maybe it's the loud guitars, maybe it's the long songs, maybe it's the lack of, you know, a really pop hook. I mean, Oasis writes really catchy songs, you know. And that's not, you know, they're not punk enough to be 
sort of in that category. They're probably too loud, and you know, shoegazer never got po- that sort of never got popular enough. So there's a lot of things that were sort of against them. But the people who like that, re- who know them and like them, every one of my friends who knew this record at that time, if you mention them, they're like, oh, I love that record. Like everyone who they might not have listened to it in a while, but every single one of them has awesome memories of that record. I, I don't do, need to be popular. I, I do need to mention that. Um, in terms of uh, album covers, this has a bad album cover. Yeah. It's, it's like a bull staring out with Swerve Driver in font that looks like <laughs> it belongs um, on like an American Pie sequel. Like it's just a bad. Like when I think of this band, I didn't really look at the album cover that much. I was listening to it. Like it, this album cover should be very like, like either should have, uh, like you said, like a like the exhaust of a muscle car speeding away and um or it should be like incredibly sleek and and uh some sort of futuristic look to it because it does it like you look at the swerve driver home cover it looks like they're going to be like a jam band with like a five string funk bass player and um a horn section uh, let's stop to stop yeah <laughs> So, hey, let me, Jay and Tim, so as you guys were getting compared to to this band and you went back and, and sort of listened to it, were you, like, flattered or were you, like, I don't hear it? Or you're, like, wow, this band is cool. Why don't I know about this? What, what did you guys think when you were sort of going uh, back? I was, I was flattered. Um, now that I listen to it, I guess I can see where some people are coming from. I don't think we, anybody would mistake us for them. But I think the pieces that we were trying to put together were similar to the pieces they were putting together, I guess. And um, I definitely was, I sort of felt, um, I thought what they were doing was was really cool. So, I mean, I, I saw it as a compliment. I just thought it was let odd li- to be compared to a band I'd never heard of before. But Let me list the bands that we were compared to, either in print or, or in person. This, Fugazi. The Replacements, Bush, uh, The Gin Blossoms, and um, what was another one? I'm trying to think. Uh, it might have been like Afghan Wigs. Yeah. So we got a lot of weird comparisons. So of all those names, I would like, I, uh, you know, this would be up on the top of my list <laughs> of all the things you just listed. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't think we're in that Fugazi Replacements. You know. We must have had a really um, uh, hardcore set that night. We must have been really angry. Well, I mean, we were... I, I, I had forgotten. I was, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, we were trying to do basically Catherine Wheel with riffs. So that's kind of <laughs> almost kinda what you madness. get with Swore Driver. I mean, it, yeah. it's a different way of putting it together, but it's kind of coming from the same aesthetic, I guess. I had forgotten that the... Uh, their, I think their debut song was called Son of Mustang Ford. Swerve Driver. Is that on Race? That that was the demo that got them signed with Mm. a song called Son of Mustang Ford. Awesome. So, So Eventually we will get to the Swerve Driver demos once we have exhausted (laughs) all their albums. I I mean, you know, I think, think, you know, Duel, you got to play some of Duel. You got to play A Last Train to Satanville. I think Harry and Maggie has some cool stuff. Um, For Seeking Heat. Um, yeah, Blowing Cool has some cool stuff going on in it. I wrote down uh, that uh, tra- something with the vibrous flat. Track yep. ten, you find it everywhere. I I wrote that down that it sounds like 
a kind of messed up Beach Boys. It's such an odd song to end this with. Um, I don't know. Re-listen to that and see if, if that if if you hear that because it's uh, kind of sounds like the Beach Boys if they recorded drunk or something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, there is a weird like '60s, and it may be because of that Beach Boys surfing, you know, cruising type of. And we mentioned it on um, Satan's Last Train to Satan'sville. There is a weird. You know, 60s sort of vibe, maybe, you know, because Shoegaze obviously draws from a little bit of psychedelica uh, or a psychedelic um, sound, which, you know, obviously emanates from from 60s and combining that with like the heavy riffs of, um, of uh, you know, we mentioned like Dinosaur Jr. And even like, you know, some of the heavier stuff you could get into like 70s hard rock and, and metal. Like there's even like stuff that draws back to like early sabbath and in terms of just the heaviness of the riffs at times for seeking heat has a huge riff and duel and a lot of those tunes where you know this this kind of crosses over it's not just it's not really an alternative record it's just a rock record really when you get down to it and it um borrows from a lot of different genres and sounds from even within the same song they they kind of cover a lot of different bases so this album's still pretty pretty easy to get. I know it's on uh, eMusic. I think eMusic. Yeah, and, and iTunes I think has both versions. I think iTunes has the U.S. and the U.K. versions. Which you're saying there's one track different? Yeah, there's a bonus track on the U.S. version, which is the "Never Lose That Feeling, Never Learn," uh, which was released as a single, but then it was removed from the U.K. version because there are. Bob Dylan lyrics in the song and they didn't clear the rights in time to release it on the UK version no kidding so that was the reason for it not being on the UK version huh that was interesting a, tidbits that was a bad choice <laughs> I would have loved to see him in the Coachella I bet that was awesome yeah maybe I'll dig up a uh, there's probably video of them on YouTube of them playing at uh, Coachella so in addition to whatever video I can find, I'll also stick that, stick that up on our website, which I encourage everybody to go to, uh, especially because you can go through our eMusic link and get this album, and we get a nice kickback for that. You can also check out our um, audible.com uh, link and download some cool books for your ears. And you can... Go to our Amazon links and buy records that way too. Records, you can download MP3s. I'm gonna be buying any records, kids. So go to digmeoutpodcast.com. That's it. Look at Neil <laughs> pimping for us. Well, you got. Uh, let's see. Last episode was uh, was that the Gaunt record? No, we. Uh, well, in terms of the world of Dig Me Out, the last record when we're talking is gonna actually be 
uh, the 360s. Okay. Are you familiar with them? Yeah, and that's kind of a similar. They're they're like the Australian Swerve Driver, sort of. Nope. They were a Boston really? um, band that drew comparisons to like Hole and Magna Pop. I thought they were that poppy. I thought they were kind of noisy. Mm. They were kind of noisy and not. They're a little noisy, but no, they were a lot cleaner. What was your thumbs up or thumbs down on that record? I don't. I I had that. I don't remember. We were. It was the first record. We were both pretty positive. We wanted to kind of see where where they went because it was definitely like, you know, raw. Sons of Elvis, huh? No. (laughs) Well, I, I think my the the best way I could sum it up was I said uh. I like this record, but I really am having a hard time telling you why. Because <laughs> every, 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 every <laughs> usual way where I would say, yeah, it's because of this and because of this, it's not because of any of those things. So, well, um, I give the I give give the Swerve Driver a big thumbs up. Jay, absolutely, yeah. That's that's three thumbs up. And I, uh, I'm, I'm glad that we we do this show because it made me go back and revisit it and listen to it. And it's it's just one of those albums where I liked it when I had it, but you know, you get a now especially you get a ton of mp3s and you sort of forget about some and i had forgotten about this so i'm glad this was a good excuse to go back and revisit it and re uh reappreciate it excellent thank neil for having me thank you for ha- thank you for coming on the show um if you want you can check out neil has a website which i believe is just neilschmidt.com am i correct that'll, that'll do it and we have a link to it on our web page as a friend of the podcast and you can learn all about all the bands that Neil has recorded and Neil's thoughts, his deepest, most inner thoughts. <laughs> uh, I'm going to start visiting that site. It's, it's uh, <laughs> I want to know Neil's thoughts. Yes. Dear internet, you <laughs> never guess what I did today. Uh, all right. I think that we've gone on long enough. Uh, totally. uh, thank both you guys. Thank everybody for listening. And uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Visit digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed.